Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Pre-Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today I'm joined by comics writer, creator, and editor Eric Palicki. Excited to talk about some of the creator's work, including Black's Myth, Atlantis Wasn't Built for Tourists, and a handful of other items, including what I hope is a very interesting hot take on X-Men comics. This was the initial basis for, uh, for my reaching out to Eric, so I'm excited to talk about that as we go, but I want to start off talking about the work, uh, including Blacksmith in particular, which I really enjoyed, a comic that came out from Ahoy Comics uh, primarily throughout last year, 2021, and will have a second volume coming here in 2022, uh, if, if what I've read is to be believed. So Eric, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Um, let's let's start with Blacksmith here. So in, in both Blacksmith and Atlantis Wasn't Built for Tourists, you have plays on monster lore, right, on, on the supernatural. Um, what are your monster verse touch points and kind of your key sources of inspiration? Because it's definitely something that uh, occurs in a fair amount of the work that I've seen from you. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks a lot for having me today. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about the work and uh, also about the X-Men a little later. Um, you know, <laughs> as far as all that goes, uh, I'm very fascinated by the mythology side of, of horror fiction, uh, more so than the jump scares and the uh, the the terror for me, uh, supernatural fiction is generally not that scary. Something like Silence of the Lambs to me is more terrifying than than the monster under the bed because you know someone like Hannibal Lecter is is actually uh, you know is 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 potentially real versus uh, you know I, I don't think I'm going to get accosted by vampires uh, on the streets of Seattle. Although you never know, uh, but it would almost be so absurd that it would be like like laughable you know, in a way where it's like, all right, if this is, if this is how it's going to happen, I accept that. <laughs> I'm more open to that. Yeah. But uh, you know, when it comes to the horror fiction touchstones uh, you know, I, I'm a, a child of the eighties and nineties. I grew up watching uh, Buffy the vampire slayer and then later supernatural. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I really enjoy like the work of Guillermo del Toro, uh, you know, who use, the mythology behind all of this horror fiction to tell compelling stories and to to delve into com compelling character situations and i hope that i can do that a little bit myself you know alan moore does it a lot you know alan moore is clearly uh, a lovecraft aficionado but uh is unafraid to touch on the problematic aspects of lovecraft's fiction uh and so so things like that you know take sort of doing a deconstructionist take on what has come before and being able to look at it uh, in that light is is kind of what I go for, uh, both as a writer and as a reader. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So with Blacksmith, you have this supernatural neo-noir kind of genre mashup, right? It stars a werewolf private investigator. Uh, it's Janie Strummer-Jones, and her partner is a, a djinn, right? This kind of ghost-like entity uh, navigating an underbelly of monster hunting and attempted murder it's uh it's an interesting approach. It's not like unheard of, but I think you do a really fun job of blending the genre, putting a modern approach. Are there any sort of works as you're looking at, as you were looking at new noir and you're looking at werewolf stories that were like like for example, like it's set in Los Angeles, right? Where you like, oh, I got to rewatch Chinatown for this. Like, what were your what were your touch points that you wanted to make sure you were kind of referencing there? Well, sure. I mean, Chinatown's a great example. Uh, most of the best, I shouldn't say most. But a lot of those like sort of key touch points historically over the last century and a half of the noir uh, genre 
it seems like LA is the place, you know, you, you something like Chinatown is the big one, but also, uh, you, you know, uh, the, the Philip Marlowe stories, uh, take place in LA. Uh, those are, uh, you know, others, uh, it doesn't necessarily take place in LA, but, uh, the Maltese Falcon was one that, uh, I really, uh, like drew a lot of inspiration from that was really the, uh, that was really the one piece of, of, of genre fiction that was my my key inspiration for this was watching the Maltese Falcon and saying like okay what if all of these characters were monsters like what if the the MacGuffin of the whole thing uh you know what if our Maltese Falcon was a thing of s potentially supernatural import and who would be after it and why and what happens when you know they find it yeah yeah okay cool now I, this it... This world is very interesting because it's grounded and you have this sort of noir detective angles, but then at the same time, right, we know our lead is a werewolf. We know she has these abilities to sort of sense and hunt, you know, based on her werewolf abilities. Obviously, she's working with the djinn. We have uh, the Minotaur, not a Minotaur, the Minotaur in this in this book, a very fun character. Uh, who Who is, like the most fun to write like was it the minotaur was it ben the gin like what what did you get the most kick out of in that in that first volume i especially love ben it's when it comes to his interactions with all of the other characters he was really the one that that shined uh for the reader uh, for the the viewers and the listeners uh, Jin, uh ben is a is a half gin uh a, a cast off you know part of this whole story thematically is about people finding each other and finding your family and uh and ben just became so much fun to write in his interactions with Janie, with with strummer rather with with uh aster the minotaur uh there's some some great exchanges that he has with a, with a vampire character in one of the later issues uh you know he really sort of started out as as if as kind of the comic relief if you don't know much about ahoy uh, Ahoy's books tend to have a humorous element. And when I pitched this book to them, one of their big concerns was, well, can you make it funnier? So, you know, Ben kind of was like my outlet. He was my, uh, you know, if you're familiar with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he was my Xander, right? He was my comic relief uh, character, but he really started to shine as I wrote him and wrote through the story. And, and I love it. And, you know, he's already, as I'm working through volume two, uh, he's already getting some really cool moments to shine once again uh, as he navigates the new status quo that we establish at the end of the first volume. Nice, nice. Yeah, no, he's a great character and a, and a great balance off of Janie. Um, that, that Buffy dynamic definitely is present. That's interesting that you mentioned, you know, because the humor here is quite good, um, but it's not, you know, it's certainly not a comedy, right? It's that naturally integrated humor into a more serious, um, again, supernatural noir type book. Uh, that's interesting, though, that it, that it's kind of as a Hoist brand, that that kind of had to be a piece of it. it this isn't, um, well, I guess let's start here then. So I, I saw in the back of the collection, there are colored pages of the pitch, right? You have these D kind of colored pages um, of the opening sequence, the intro to issue number one. The book itself is in black and white. And I saw that, you know, editorially, there was a, this recommendation that like, actually, I think we should, you know, Wendell Cavalcanti's art here in black and white is the way to go. What went into that decision and how uh, sort of like, I, did it feel like a huge risk to you? Like, were you totally on board? Were you kind of worried about it? Like, what was your reaction there? So there are, there were two editorial decisions that were made uh, that initially I was very worried about. 
Um, and uh, all credit to not just my the, the uh, editor at large at Ahoy, Sarah Litt, but also you know the the senior editorial staff, Stuart Moore, uh, Tom Pyre, and and the uh, and Hart Seeley, who have you know between them like. Like, I don't know, somehow they have four or five centuries of comic book experience between them. <laughs> uh, so I should have just let, trusted their instincts. Uh, the first was I kind of wanted to keep the fact that Strummer was a werewolf sort of a secret until that big reveal page midway through the first issue. And mm-hmm. uh, they said, no, we're going to lead with that. We're going to this is how we're going to sell the book is it's you know werewolf P.I. prowling the mean streets of Los Angeles. And I. Uh, you know, I sort of reluctantly went ar- went along with that, only to discover that it was absolutely the right call, and it it absolutely um, you know helped sell the book uh, from the outset. And the second one, yes, was the uh, was the color. I pitched the book as a color book with with D having done those pages. You know, D Cunniff is uh, a, you know a fantastic colorist who's done a lot of work for Image and uh, and AfterShock and and. And Vault has been all over the place, and I was really excited to have him on board. And they took one look at the pages, both the the inked pages that Wendell turned in and uh, Dee's colored pages, and said, "You know what? This is a strong book in black and white." And I was initially, I initially took that the wrong way, admittedly, and you know, all apologies to again that editorial staff that that knew what they were doing was that. I thought that they were kind of just dismissing and diminishing this book as as part of their catalog, uh, only to find out that they were like, no, absolutely, Wendell's, uh, you know, line work and 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 inks are strong enough to carry the book on its own. And the more I thought about it, is you know, the most popular and successful comic outside of the big two in America over the last twenty years has been a non-superhero black and white horror book. So I guess, you know, if I'm going to follow in the footsteps of anything, uh, The Walking Dead is a pretty good place to start. So, mm-hmm. you know, needless to say, uh, we did uh, follow through with the black and white and it's it's been a very successful book. It's been well re- uh, received by the audiences. Uh, not a lot of uh, not a lot of complaints on the on the black and white side. I did write the book as a color book, so there are a couple of things that I might have done a little bit differently if I had known from the outset it was going to be black and white. But that's something that uh, is easy to fix uh, now that we're moving on to uh, to volume two. Gotcha, gotcha. Was is one of the things that that you wrote with having a colored book in mind, just in terms of like the the representation and like skin color of your characters because there are certain cultural distinctions that appear to be there but maybe would be clearer in color or am I reading that the wrong way? Um, uh, to to a degree, yes. Uh, that is that is one thing. Although, um, one of the things about these characters is that, uh, you know, now that we've we've kind of established, you know, the the culture and ethnicity of these characters, uh we can we can we can move past that and just tell stories about these people as people or you know as as supernatural entities as it may be but that that was absolutely a concern um you know just a couple of of things in terms of uh you know hints towards the the mystery of of the the story that was being told uh that first opening splash page where strummer is uh you know 
sitting in her own bloody bathtub, I think worked really well in color. Uh, and, you know, we had to, you know, adjust the, the captioning just a little bit to, uh, to give you uh, a sense that she was sitting in uh, it, that, that tub was, was bloodstained. But yeah, there's, there's some, there's some cultural aspects to it, but, you know, uh, we were able to, to bring in uh, Liana Kangas as our cover artist. Uh, she was well aware of what was happening with the characters. So she was able to use, you know, color on her end to, to, uh, to give the, that implication uh, as well as our awesome variant cover artists. I got to have Jamal Eigel as a, as a variant cover artist, which is kind of a bucket list thing, as well as Steve Pugh did the issue two variant. So we were able to, uh, you know, use other aspects of the book to kind of cover uh, that information. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. That's an, it's a really interesting editorial instinct, especially, you know, considering like that wasn't necessarily yours and, and Wendell's plan for it um certainly reading it i didn't have any issue with it and and like you said you know with, with the walking dead as black and white it's far from unheard of <laughs> you know um but it is when you see those color pages it's like oh it's like it's not like it looks bad like it looks good you know like it's a it's a good looking book so it's really interesting editorial would have gone that direction um i do kind of enjoy it's hard to imagine it now having read the whole thing uh fully colored i guess you know having experienced the whole story but it's, uh, yeah, no, it's good stuff. So, all right. So the other piece I want to ask you is the the lead PI here is a werewolf, nickname Strummer, real name Janie Jones, which is a Clash song. Uh, she grew up on the Clash through her father. Uh, why all the Clash references, <laughs> aside from the fact that they rule? Well, they are my favorite band. Uh, okay, so yeah. just being able to uh, uh, imbue the, uh, you know, to, to mention that, to, to bring that up in... Uh, you know, is like Joe Strummer specifically and the entire band, uh, you know, we're big, our big creative uh, touchstones for me. Uh, so it was nice to be able to, to do something and to say something about that uh, in terms of, of, you know, their, their influences on, on my work. And, you know, and, and I mean, the original, I like the, the pun title that is blacksmith. Um, but uh, there was a version of this pitch out there that was called Strummer. Gotcha, gotcha. Is there anything to a werewolf in London and London Calling mashing up? <laughs> <laughs> or am I reading way too much into no, that? No, if, uh, if we do a volume three, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, we, will be, we will be taking these characters to England, 100%. Okay, um, okay. You know, so... Uh, you know, listeners out there who enjoy the book start clamoring for a volume three now. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah, right. Right. So, yeah, no, we got to We got to help volume two do do well enough to get there. Um, so before we talk volume two, I, I thought it was pretty cool that on free comic day, you shared a, a download folder, some of like your your older comics work. Um, a whole bunch of stuff that people can check out. I think it might still be available like through your Twitter. Yes. Uh, I definitely noticed going back and reading some of the earlier work and then, you know, Blacksmith and, and Atlantis. You definitely seem, I think, more confident, more assured of like pacing and thematic connections from chapter to chapter. Uh, I'm, I'm sure some of that too is like you collab with the same artist. You're collabing with Wendell on both those books. What do you feel like has changed the most in your work from then to now? Like, do, would you ever? I don't know. Do you cringe when you go back and look at the old stuff, or do you still feel good about it? Like, what's your? What do you feel like your own progression is? So there are a few things in that folder that I I do cringe at. Um, 
I think when I first started out, I did a lot of of aping of creators that I was uh, was fond of myself. And I think yeah. that I'm sort of developing my own voice. I think, uh, you know, if you read something like my very first book was called Orphans, which was really uh, a love letter to planetary. Uh, and, uh, you know, as as divisive and, and problematic as that is now, you know, Warren Ellis was one of my big, uh, uh, you know, I learned how to write comics because the uh, the first volume of The Authority had a, uh, reprint of the first issue script in the back. Uh, so that's how I learned how to write comics. So, uh, you know, all that early work was just love letters to existent material and now trying to find my own voice and tell my own stories and, and touch on the, uh, the themes and, and, and what's important to me and not just trying to ape existing work. Um, but actually I really appreciate you saying that I've gotten better. That means I'm doing something right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it, it felt, I read Blacksmith first and then I went back and I just, in the way that each issue sets up with kind of a, you know, a recurring refrain, um, how it all ties together by the end of that first volume, you know, it's, it's just, um, nice craft, like connective tissue that ties everything together as we go through what again is a very fun, <laughs> you know, monster mystery of sorts, right? And, and this investigative journey that we're on. So there will be a Blacksmith Volume 2. You mentioned you're working on it. Um, when When is that anticipated? And what can you kind of tease about it that people should expect? It is going to be out uh, either the very end of uh, 2022 or uh, probably it will probably be serialized into early 2023. Um, well, hopefully the launch will be this year yet. Uh, the big thing is that the the title of the book, Blacksmith, is uh, a reference to one of the major characters and and uh, Strummer's client, Rainsford Black. And, uh, you know, he's not painted in the best light in the first volume. So uh, if I'm going to keep that title, uh, you know, he needs to come back, even though the place where he and Strummer are left as far as their relationship is not the best. Uh, so finding a way to do that and maybe give him, if not a redemption arc, at least, uh, a, you know, a note of explanation about why he is who he is uh, was something that I felt was important. Uh, so, you know, kind of exploring his history as it relates to this kind of secret supernatural underground that exists in L.A. and, and the rest of the world uh, is what we're going to do. Uh, but and and then, of course, how. Strummer is reluctantly drawn back into his orbit. Um, and of course it's, it's still going to be noir. So the, uh, you know, don't expect, uh, all unicorns and rainbows, uh, as the, uh, uh, as the story progresses. Right, right. For sure. Okay, cool. No, I'm looking forward to that, to, to seeing more in this universe. It's very fun. Um, and seeing what comes next. Now you've talked in, I've seen in previous interviews, about, you know, you're working in this um, urban fantasy, right? And and kind of trying to avoid maybe some of the more YA aspects of like popular urban fantasy, you know, attempting some deeper levels of maturity. Um, kind of why do you why do you want to take this approach? And how does that manifest in your storytelling? Uh, well, I have a deep appreciation for uh, the that YA that whole urban fantasy genre, it really bothers me that 
uh, urban fantasy is automatically associated with YA. Um, uh, I, I actually pitched this to another publisher before Ahoy jumped on, and that was actually a concern that they had is why are you just telling a, a YA story? And I didn't feel it was that way. And, you know, I started off reading uh, YA science fiction when I was, uh, you know, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and then grew into adult science fiction. And I felt like there is plenty of audience that uh, exists that started off reading YA and needs to graduate to something else uh, in terms of its maturity, but maybe the dour uh nihilistic writings of the the post lovecraftian the post lovecraftian uh, uh cosmic horror writers there has to be a happy medium between those two yeah yeah no it is it, that's definitely something i've been so i've been going back and reading a ton of science fiction because i had a, a background you know i'm like i was an english major in college and that sort of thing so it's like i've read a lot of the literary classics and that sort of thing um, and I've read way too many comic books, <laughs> obviously, right? Which is why I'm doing this. But then it, there's that part of me in the past couple of years where I'm like, I haven't read like any of the popular science fiction. <laughs> like, why did I? Why did I skip over all the fun stuff? Um, so yeah, I love stuff that's able to find that that happy medium and finding a, a newfound appreciation for it. Um, and and I think too, like you know, with readers, a lot of times it's like, okay, maybe urban fantasy. Yeah, there there might be a, a wrongheaded assumption that it's automatically YA. But then also the like the way people can kind of lift their noses at that. And it's like, yeah, but that can be really fun too, <laughs> you know? So bouncing between those two things, I think has, has a lot of value. Definitely. Uh, if someone starts with something like Twilight, you know, to name the ultimate urban fantasy YA book and comes to blacksmith eventually, uh, who am I to judge? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I guess at least you're reading, uh, uh, you know, sure. I would prefer you were reading, something else but sure, you know yeah. as long as it got you here i i don't care you know <laughs> right sure yeah no we all we all take our own varied paths um one thing i thought was interesting too in your in your career here in your comics work is you've been editing these dead beats anthologies um and i know that i think the volume two was kickstarted i think late last year dead beats is a it's a horror anthology and it's a bunch of different creators doing um horror stories set like with the the premise of it like all kind of stems from this music shop like, or record store right um yes how has editing that anthology like impacted your own storytelling or has it no it absolutely has it's always good to see how other people do it uh and something that i've known ever since i was you know a uh, a shift manager at a pizza place in college was that you learn by teaching others. So you become aware of your own shortcomings and the the things that you need to shore up as far as your skills by uh, you sort of discover it by, by sort of shepherding other people, shepherding other people uh, along the same path. And uh, I would like to think that I've become a better storyteller by, by editing and you know, some of the people that I had in, I've had in these books that I've worked with in these books, people like Lila Sturgis, Jody Hauser, Justin Jordan, uh, Vita Ayala. These are people who are incredibly talented in their own right. So getting to see how they do it is, uh, you, you know, helps me. And, and I, I would like to think that I sort of learn a little bit from each, uh, from each experience. 
you know, I said, I, I, I learned how to write scripts by reading other people's scripts. So the, the same thing applies even now as I continue to learn. Yeah, absolutely. That that was a big thing this past week. I don't know how online you are <laughs> or how how sane you managed to stay, but there was a, a big conversation around, you know, comic scripting and trying to sort of templatize how that looks. And I, there was a lot of like reaction to right and wrong ways to do it. But to my mind, as someone who does not actively <laughs> write anything fictional, I was like, if I wanted to start, I would want guidance. <laughs> I would want to see how other people do it. I've always found that fascinating in the back of collections. You know, you mentioned the authority. It's it's It was a big DC thing, I feel like, for a long time in a lot of their trades. I remember the Morrison Arkham Asylum has this, where it's like, yeah, just seeing like how some of these people you look up to or value their work, like what does a script look like to them? How do they do it? And obviously like the Alan Moore stuff is famous where it's like, you know, hey, here's this prose novel <laughs> with this incredible writing that is also a script. And it's like, okay, that's fascinating in its own right. Yeah, I remember there is a, a reprint. One of the Watchmen reprints has snippets of the script uh, reprinted. And they were actually copies, photocopies of, of Dave Gibbons' original Watchmen script pages. And you can see where he has taking, taken a, uh, a highlighter. And out of this huge multi-paragraph panel description, he's highlighted one or two sentences that were the actual thing he needed to draw. And, and you know, that, that actually taught me a lot as a, as a writer was, you know, to you, you sort of want to minimize the information. You don't want to overload your artist or the artist, rather the collaborators, with information. Uh, as far as the script template discourse, uh, one of the beauties of of I, I chose not to wade into it on Twitter. One of the beautiful things about about comics is that we're still sort of in this wild west phase where um, we can do whatever works. Whereas if you work in screenwriting or even uh, manuscript format for a novel, you know, there are very specific industry dictated demands on your, on your formatting. You know, you can turn in a, a pilot script for a TV series and the studios will reject it because you used an inch and a quarter margins instead of an inch and a half margin, or uh, you use size 11 font instead of size 12 font. The nice thing about comics is that we're still in a stage where whatever works for you is fine. And you, uh, when you make comics, it's a collaborative medium. So you have to have uh, considerations for not just the artist, but the colorist, the letterer, your editorial staff. So everybody is going to uh, come to the like a conclusion differently. I, I saw more criticisms of that template from artists than I did from writers. And I think it's important that you realize that this is just a starting point and it's, it's a great starting point. Uh, it was great of, of Steens and Camilla to put this out into the world for us, but it's just a starting point. And if it doesn't work for you or if it doesn't work for you in this exact format, that's okay. And it's cool to, change it to something that does. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, and then to go back to the Watchmen example you gave where it's like, okay, does filling out all of this detail, is that helping my artist, right? Is that the way that we work together best? That's always going to be fairly unique depending on the collaboration. You know, I would imagine some artists love that. Others want more freedom potentially. 
you know, and I feel like you have to, and I'm sure this is something that you've been picking up working with Wendell on a, a number of projects now where it's like, okay, like you're probably figuring out ways of working together, you know, and that collab is going to shift depending on different creators. And then you factor in the letters and the colorists and how they work and, you know, all that has to build into one cohesive entity, I think. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Your workflow is going to change depending on the people you work with. Uh, Blacksmith is built on six and nine panel grids, uh, which was, uh, you know, I have all apologies to Wendell. I'm sorry. I started writing it that way. And then by the time I realized it didn't really need to be done that way, it was too late to change it. (laughs) But, you know, but on the other hand, Atlantis wasn't built for tourists, which is also a collab with Wendell. Uh, You know, we didn't have. Uh, I didn't give him that strict of an instruction and, and you can see the differences and, and absolutely it's going to change collaborator to collaborator. And Wendell and I have been working together on various projects for nigh on a decade now. So I can write much more sparely for him, much more sparse uh, panel descriptions for him than I would have when, than I would an artist that I've never worked with before. Uh, I don't have to give as many color directions uh, when I write blacksmith, obviously, you know, I I give, you know, day versus night is pretty much all that I need to, uh, to dictate. Uh, So, you know, that changes how I write the script. So yeah, there's, it's going to change depending on your collaborators, depending on the book, depending on the demands of the publisher and the editor. And, and, you know, the beauty of comics is that you can be flexible and, uh, it's a very elastic medium that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Are there any plans for more Atlantis wasn't built for tourists? I hope so. Uh, you know, Wendell is, Wendell is tied up with blacksmith for the foreseeable future. I will say that I have written a one shot sequel to the first volume of Atlantis wasn't built for tourists that is being illustrated by uh, Stephen Russell Black, uh, who is a, primarily a painter, he did the uh, comic shop Buyers Network variant for Atlantis Wasn't Built for Tourists number one, which you can find online. Uh, he's actually recently done his first work for Wizards of the Coast, illustrating a couple magic cards. Uh, but he was really interested in doing a uh, uh, some sequential work, so I wrote him a one-shot uh, sequel that would ideally be a bridge between a full volume one and volume two of Atlantis wasn't built for tourists, but it's, it's really, uh, based on, on availability. I know scout is very high on that book. Uh, so, uh, it is definitely a universe I want to, uh, to revisit at some point in the future. Cool. So for folks who haven't checked that one out yet, yeah, that one's released by scout comics. Uh, the trade is available currently. It is a, um, it's kind of a classic, like stranger comes to a new small town with a secret story. Um, and as we've been talking about, you know, there's a supernatural element. <laughs> so if you like Blacksmith, um, you'll feel almost certainly like this one. I Maybe this is a little spoilery if somebody hasn't read it. So I guess skip ahead like a minute if you have. But Eric, I have to ask, what is what is the main character called? Like what kind of creature are they? <laughs> so uh, the main character is uh, a deep one. Uh, and that book is a direct, well, it is a direct unofficial sequel to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's Shadow of Oh, okay, okay. Uh, which is my favorite of Lovecraft's stories. It's also one of his many problematic works. 
And I kind of wanted to address some of the problematic elements of that story by crafting a sort of sequel that also staples that mythology onto the plot of A Fistful of Dollars. And, uh, you know, it's just this crazy kitchen sink mashup of, of stuff that I love. And Wendell just knocked it out of the park. And I had a lot of fun with that. You know, maybe in, in some some future universe we can intro you know we could we could introduce strummer jones to uh to uh lucas lewis and yeah you know, they could have an adventure together Yeah, why not build your own shared universe i love it yeah I'd, i would love to do that super cool so the there's a a sequence in there too um uh, the display of the sort of swamp thing-esque creatures right the deep ones as, as I now know them to be called, it looks so good. Those pages are incredibly cool by Wendell. I love it. Um, so, okay, I didn't realize it was it was Lovecraftian myth. Um, I've got to I've got to go back now. That makes me want to want to read that and then consider it in light of that. That was something I got to do. Uh, it's something I, or a project I took on a couple of years ago, reading um, oh, the Victor Laval novella, um, the Ballad of Black Tom, and then the actual Lovecraft is based on. I don't know if you, or the red. I think it's something Red Hook. Yeah, the horror of Red Hook. Yeah, yeah, that one. That was a fascinating because you see just all the racism <laughs> in in the horror of Red Hook, but then obviously Lovecraft's influence and and Laval taking that on in the way that that he can. It's fascinating. It was a great, great read. Um, I've got to check that out now. Really cool. And hey, Victor Laval is doing uh, one of the few uh, X books that I'm still really high on. <laughs> yeah, uh, his Sabretooth is really good. I love I love that transition for me. Much appreciated. <laughs> uh, I figured I figured it was coming, so I thought I would uh, I would take the low hanging. You're spot there. on. Yeah, no, I'm loving Sabretooth as well. I think that one's been really good. So yeah, we connected initially because I saw you tweeting about you had some thoughts about the Krakoa era of X Men, um, which is you know for for all my X Men heads out there, right? It's been going on since 2019's House of X and Powers of Ten. Uh, let's hear it. What what do you think about about what's going on with X Men? Okay, so. Uh, without getting too much into the weeds, I thought um, House of X and Powers of Ten in a vacuum was phenomenal. It was, you know, Hickman at the height of his powers. He did this great sweeping epic story uh, with with the X-Men and, and advanced the mythology and did some really cool things. Uh, you know, the the introduction that Moira has been a mutant all along was something that uh, uh, doesn't necessarily feel organic to me because someone would have figured it out, but I will just go with it. Uh, uh, you know, I just thought it was it was well done. It was well illustrated. It was uh, it was, you know, just this this appropriate epic that, you know, we hadn't seen since uh, New X-Men and the, and the Morrison era where it actually advanced the story of these characters. Um, but outside of that vacuum, uh, the first thing is that it didn't really offer a lot of the, the, those stories themselves, that, that two-pronged epic doesn't offer necessarily a satisfying resolution uh, on its own. It just introduced a new status quo. And the two big problems I have with that new status quo are 
uh, one, and this is this one is is a minor quibble uh, because it it can be rectified. And then the second one is is not so easy to rectify. But my minor quibble with uh, my minor quibble is that it wiped almost the entirety of the X Men's Rogues Gallery off the table. Uh, Sinister's part of Krakoa. Magneto's part of Krakoa. Apocalypse is part of Krakoa. Sebastian Shaw is part of Krakoa. Uh, you know, these were these were very powerful and interesting antagonists that were reduced either to allies or to minor characters. Um, and, you know, I know that they did introduce, you know, uh, what Shaw was doing in Marauders and, you know, what Sinister's been doing all along have been somewhat uh, antagonistic and nefarious. But in terms of the big sweeping epic X-Men storylines that we're used to, this this kind of took that all off the table. The second thing that really bothers me is that the mechanism of the story erases all of the stakes. And like, I know that in the macro, we expect that when a character dies in comics they're going to come back at some point. I mean, friggin' Bucky. Bucky's running around in the Marvel Universe yeah, now. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> uh, but but in, the, in the micro, we always expect character deaths to be meaningful. And the threat of death and the risk of death is a really real thing, at least as we go story to story. Uh, not just in the X-Men, but in all, in all adventure and action comics, right? In all superhero comics, like... You know, there is a real potential risk to a character's life and limb when they go out and they do superhero shit. Um, sorry, that will be my one. I don't know how all ages you are. <laughs> You're fine. But, yeah. um, uh, uh, but the mechanism that Hickman introduced in House of X Powers of Ten is that there are no longer any stakes because if an X-Man dies... They're just going to, the five are just going to bring him back, uh, you know, and even when they do things like kill Professor X, which could have been a potential, uh, you know, that could have potentially reintroduced the stakes of death being meaningful in the X-Men stories. They then had Jean Grey was able to bring Professor X back. So that is my big issue. And then we get done with this huge epic story and then the first story out of the gate for the ongoing x-men series is these new villains who are septuagenarian gardeners which (laughs) yeah 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 right i I think octogenarian even (laughs) but but now we're nitpicking uh, right now we're picking this again (laughs) I, i just don't feel like anything that has come since house of x powers of 10 has really lived up to the potential of that series. And that's, that's my big uh, sweeping opinion of the X-Men stuff. Sure. Sure. I think there's a lot of folks who would agree with you um, on, on a number of those points. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think the, in terms of it living up to that hype, I think that's been one of the, the hardest blows for folks because house and powers are so good, but they also, to your point, they get to do the thing of, being entirely the first act and not pretending to resolve anything. The whole point is to set up something that can run for years. 
right, <laughs> of an ongoing comics line. So there is no, I, I guess it's a satisfying ending in terms of like, let's enjoy the work and let's see what comes next. But it's not a satisfying ending in terms of, well, what's Krakoa going to be like? Because that's the story that's being told in ongoing comics, which kind of by their very nature just aren't as tight or as sweeping or as epic as anything in House and Powers. Um, and some of that was kind of to be expected. Some of that is, you know, disappointing, I think, in how it's been executed. So, yeah, I am with you on that, that kind of living up to the dream of House and Powers has definitely not come to fruition and uh, maybe never could, <laughs> which is a bummer. Sure. And and I, I don't, I don't want to speak to, you know, what the overall plan was. It feels like, you know, Hickman left before telling the full weight of his story, uh, much like, you know, Morrison left before they finished their story in, in New X-Men. Um, or they told us, they gave us a satisfying ending, even if they had originally intended for it to go longer. Uh, and there are, I mean, obviously you sort of, you know, you, 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 you spiral towards chaos when you go from this very tightly plotted story that was Hickman as the maestro to bringing in, you know, a half dozen or more other creators and, and adding them to the mix who might have different sensibilities than, than Jonathan did, even if he was, you know, he was kind of in a showrunner role. It's, it's going to be a lot of different voices. And there are like, there are bright spots. There are things I've enjoyed. I liked, um, you know, I liked Duggan's Marauders was Kitty, Kate, Catherine, and Shadowcat Pride uh, uh, fan. But, uh, uh, and I liked what Ben Percy was doing uh, more with X-Force than with Wolverine, but both were pretty good. Uh, Sabretooth has been phenomenal. Uh, but uh, some of them didn't didn't quite land for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's definitely been the a general consensus. Is you know, there's there's hits and there's high points. I do think like when you go from, you know, yeah, that single singular, even though it's obviously it's collab- still a collaboration. This is comics, right? We got Pepe Larraz, we got R.P. Silva, we got all these names right involved. Um, but then you go to yeah, a full line white x office you know you are just going to have more peaks and valleys of of quality and some people hitting and some people missing i mean i think broadly like when you look at it in the scope of x-men history it's quite good (laughs) compared to like all right if we're going to have you know 10 to 12 x titles um what's the what's the floor right for for where these series are i think a lot of them have been well above sort of kind of what that's been throughout marvel history um it just doesn't quite meet up to maybe those initial expectations. But yeah, I don't know. There's high points now. I'm, I'm, Sabretooth's been great. I'm really eager to see what Kieran Gillen's going to bring to the table. I think Immortal X-Men got off to an interesting start. Um, so I maintain some optimism, but but I, I think that sense of like, oh, this feels like it could be yeah. like truly, truly incredible. And it kind of being like, oh, well, yeah. and- maybe it's good. <laughs> like that's kind of a, kind of been the, the arc of the last couple of years. Um, I, d- I do think though, just to, to go to your, your primary quibble. Um, I have to say that personally, I actually loved the idea of mutant resurrection because, because of one of the reasons you outline, which is superhero death becoming so meaningless 
and the the concept i don't know if it's always worked but the concept of trying to find more creative ways to create stakes and to create meaning than something that has kind of lost all of its luster and all of its power in in marvel and dc comics um i thought was pretty smart and and it also allows for the complications of like one of the coolest things about this era to me which is moira has lived thousands of years into the future right so this long game this sci-fi-esque narrative arc of like well how do we get mutant kind to extend for thousands upon thousands of years which they haven't really done much with but i but i like the idea of it i can accept your uh your premise there on why we can move past uh superhero deaths as a as a plot point so what else do you have coming what else do you have coming next um i know you got a series called ninja kaiden what can you tell us about that um anything else on the way yeah so uh so ninja ninja kaiden is the the next book that i have coming from from black box comics it was a the the publisher reached out to me and he said i have this this project that i'd like you to develop and he gave me some notes and i kind of built off of that. And I think I've created like a really cool uh, uh, original uh, and unique take on, on ninjas and, and, and assassins and, and technology. It's a, it's about a, 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 a young person uh, of, of Japanese descent, Yuki Snow, uh, whose estranged father passes away and, and Yuki inherits his company uh, Yuki discovers that his father had been working on this very unique armor that allows him to um, basically interact with ghosts, to touch and and uh, and see ghosts. And the reasons behind that armor are somewhat shrouded in mystery, at least as the story opens. And uh, you know, as Yuki delves further into the mystery, he kind of has to find out. Uh, what his what his father was up to and why, and uh, and then also there's ninjas. So it's you know ninja. It's it's just your typical ninjas versus ghosts story, and uh, and I love what we've been able to do with it. Working with this phenomenal Brazilian artist uh, Lucas Meyer, uh, who is absolutely going to get snagged up by one of the big two, sooner rather than later. Uh, other than that, I have um, you know the follow up to Blacksmith coming in in the fall, and then. Uh, and then some other, you know, creator-owned work that I can't talk about yet. Sure. Okay. Cool. That all sounds good. So we'll look for that. We'll have links here to Blacksmith and the work in the show notes for those listening. Um, I'm Dave. Everybody can find my stuff, of course, at comicbookherald.com. You can find me at comicbookherald pretty much anywhere on social. Eric, where should people find you if they want to look for more of your work? Yeah. So ericpalicki.com is a good place to start, and I am at ericpalicki on Instagram and Twitter. Sounds good. All right. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And uh, and, and we'll, we'll check out the work here and find the links in the show notes, everybody. All right. Thanks, Eric.